the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. By the way, welcome to the very first day of September. The year is three quarters over already. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions. Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life. Really anything that's on your heart, all you have to do is pick up the phone and dial... 210-340-9585. Excuse me, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Well, as always, it's busy around here as the weekend approaches. This is, as you all know, a holiday weekend. Have a great holiday. Just a scheduling note, we will not be live on Monday, KSLR, the studios are closed, so there will be a rebroadcast of the program, and we'll join you again live on Tuesday, Lord willing. Uh, Tonight here, I'm teaching a whole book, the book of Philemon, uh, at 7 o'clock. You can watch it uh, live stream at calvaryessay.com, or you can join us. We usually have some room on Friday nights, especially when... Uh, it's a holiday weekend, so we'd love to to have you come and join us. Uh, Communion Sunday is this uh, weekend, so we invite you to, uh, whether it's um, our church or the church that you go to, uh, a lot of churches do the communions on the first Sunday of the month, and we would love to have you join us and celebrate the Lord's table and the fellowship that we have. Okay, while we wait for some phone calls, let's go to some questions that have been sent in. My first one comes from Kirby, um, from our email inbox. Pastor on, based on your teaching in Leviticus 7 on Wednesday night, what is the difference between a sin offering and a guilt offering? Uh, isn't guilt equal to sin? I asked because you said the guilt offering is a trespass, and I equate trespass as a sin. Can you help me understand? Thank you. Kirby, I can. At least I, I hope I can. You get all of these different offerings, uh, and uh, it can be a little bit confusing. Uh, when I said the guilt offering, the NIV translates it a guilt offering. I think the better translation is some of the other texts that that, that uh, use the, the term trespass offering. 
uh, and its difference. And the difference is a sin offering is an offering for our sin that wipes away our sins. Now, obviously, in the Old Testament, sins were never wiped away. They were only covered over from year to year. But this was the sins. First, the priest would make a, the high priest would, would make an atonement for his personal sin, then for the sins of the people. And uh, when the high priest emerged from the Holy of Holies, uh, at that point, after sprinkling the blood on the, the mercy seat of the ark, uh, everybody would erupt in joy because God had forgiven their sins and covered over until the next day of atonement. Now, for us, we know that when we come to Jesus, our sins are forgiven. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That's Second Corinthians 5.21. And it just teaches that our sins are completely wiped away. So grace has its advantages to law. Law covered over sins. Uh, but the sin offering made uh, for you and for me, of course, is Jesus Christ. And the sin offering was perfect and accepted by the Lord. Uh, the trespass offering is sort of uh, different in that it reflects our fellowship with God. Um, you know, though my sins are forgiven, Kirby, um, I can sin, and if I'm not repentant, if I'm not confessing that sin and getting right with God, then my fellowship with God is broken off. And that's what a trespass offering was sort of in the Old Testament. I, I did something that's wrong, I know it's wrong, and they'd make that that offering. For you and for me, the equivalent in the New Testament is First John 1, 9, where if we confess our sins and remember that confession is to agree with God about sin. We can't say, well, Lord, you know, if I sinned or I don't think it's that bad, our fellowship is still cut off. And in Leviticus, we talked about intentional versus unintentional uh, trespass as well. Well, when we sin, we can confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us and purify us, present active tense, and purify us from all unrighteousness so that our fellowship is restored. Now, Kirby, that's that's what's really important in our walk with the Lord. We need to get right with God when we sin. We need to stay right with God by confessing and being being repentant of our sin. And then our fellowship with God, our access to God, is as it always was. So that's the, the difference. One would deal with the sin of the people overall. And the second, the trespass offering, would simply deal with the act of sins uh, throughout the day. Their sins were covered over for a year, but they still continue to sin, so they would still bring those offerings. Trespassing, and I said this, Kirby, on Wednesday night, um, you know, trespass indicates that God establishes boundaries. He always has, and he always will. God says, I've got these boundaries for you, not because I don't want you to have fun, not because I don't want you to do things that you want to do, but because these things aren't good for you, so I'm going to set these boundaries. And trespassing is when those boundaries are crossed over, either intentionally or unintentionally. Kirby, when I was in junior high school and then high school, uh, we used to have to walk across this property that had no trespassing signs posted all over it. And we didn't want to go around. That was too long. It was much more inconvenient. And so we'd kind of look around and didn't see anybody, and we'd cut across the field with all those no trespassings. One day, we showed up, and there was a sign that said, trespassers will be shot. Well, we thought about it a lot more. Now, honestly, I've got to tell you, this is the kind of people we are. Uh, we, we continue to sneak across. But we were aware that we could have been shot, and we were accountable. Well, God gives us those boundaries so that we will be aware and accountable for those sins when we trespass. Great question, Kirby. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Anonymous from our email inbox. Pastor Ron, an acquaintance where found out I was a Christian. We've been talking, and I found out that she's an atheist. I've been trying to introduce the Lord to her, which is taking some time. She recently asked me a question I couldn't answer right away, and I wonder if you could help me. Here's what she asked. At what point do the stories of the Bible become truth 
and truth is in quotes, and at what point are they allegory, and how do you decide that? Do you simply dismiss those that are not so outlandish that they cannot be believed and decide their allegories? Um, um, an anonymous two things. Thank you, thank you, thank you for reaching out to this woman and having the courage to speak to her. You know, that can be a little bit daunting, you know, when when somebody lets them, uh, people know that she's an atheist, I'm just not interested, and yet the Lord's put you in her life for such a time as this. Now, the question, and, and th- this is a question I understand from an unbeliever, Unfortunately, there are times I get these questions from professing believers that I don't understand. Anybody who's read the Bible can easily tell when something is an allegory and when something is true. A story and an allegory are two different things. A narrative and an allegory are two different things. And I find that when the Bible speaks metaphorically or symbolically, it is crystal clear that that's how you're supposed to take it. For example, the psalmist writes, the trees of the field clap their hands. Now, we know that can't be taken literally because trees don't have hands. So what's happening is the psalmist, David in this case, is is poetically, and these are poetic books, poetically he's painting a picture that we can understand the greater principle. Jesus made a distinction between stories actual events, and or parables. And when he spoke in parables, the Bible makes it very clear that he's speaking in a parable. And so um, the the um, unbeliever would say, well, how do you know which is which? Um, the, the way I would challenge her is to um, ask her to, to, to read it, read it in context, and then ask me the questions about it. But give the Holy Spirit a chance to knock on the door of her heart and answer her question. Now, we don't dismiss anything. We don't dismiss the allegories. They have a very important point that they're trying to make. We don't dismiss the parables. Uh, they're illustrations of truth. Uh, and certainly we don't dismiss the stories or the narrative. So we take everything as inspired by God. When we come to an allegory or a parable, then we have to sort of dig in a little bit and find out what the main point of the allegory or the parable is. And and especially with parables, there's only one main point in every allegory, in every parable, just one main point. Now, let me deal with something that's a little more difficult, something like the Song of Songs. Um, The Song of Songs, written by Solomon, um, is a real historical story. But it's also, I think, of greater value to us because it is also an allegory. He's painting a picture. Uh, There's a real love story. Solomon fell in love uh, at first sight. Uh, He saw the the Shulamite and uh, she took his breath away. And the book, the song, it's it's one of Solomon's thousand songs, um, and and um, again, he makes it clear it's a real story. But then we understand also that it's a story, a love affair. And and the lover, Solomon in this case, represents Jesus. And the loved or the beloved uh, represents the church. So Jesus is speaking to all of us as a group, as a church. He loves us. He thinks we're, we're pretty hot. Um, but but individually, he looks at this girl and he says, how oh, beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. That's what Jesus sees in us after we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. So we can take that particular poem, uh, song lyric, and we can say, yes, it's real. It's historical. Uh, Solomon was sharing the love of his life. But we also know that it paints a bigger picture. And that's what's so valuable about the Word of God. So uh, what I would ask her to do is give me some examples. Clearly, she's in the Bible. She's looking uh, for some answers. Give me some examples of passages that you're having difficulty with, and then we can explain them. And there are explanations for all of them. But... 
Yes, some are allegorical. Uh, there are parables, uh, but we don't dismiss any of them. And by the way, I don't think any of them are outlandish uh, and cannot be believed. In fact, because they're illustrations of truth, uh, we need to believe them with all of our heart. Great question, Anonymous. Um, maybe a little more detail. I can give you a little bit more detail in the answer as well. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from, let me see, this one is from another anonymous. Uh, would you give a clear view of predestination? Um, yeah, well, I hope it's clear. Um, I can do it very quickly, I think. Anonymous predestination or election, uh, different words are used for the same to describe the same uh, teaching, the same doctrine, um, is simply God choosing those who are going to be saved. Now, the question about predestination is, what is the basis by which God makes that choice? And we've got two explanations, Romans eight twenty nine and 1 Peter 1, the first two verses, were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. In other words, it's not God saying, okay, um, anonymous, I choose you. Ron, I don't choose you. That's not what he's doing. But what God is doing is choosing us based on what he knows we're going to choose to, to do or be. For instance, and that's why Romans 8.29 is so personally precious to me. Um, Romans 8.29, my paraphrase, says, God loved Ron so much that he decided to love him no matter how hard Ron tried to change God's mind. And with all the terrible things that I did, all the times I misused and abused God for my own personal gain, God never for a moment changed his mind about loving me. And the reason that he didn't change his mind is because he knew that on that day in February of 1991, I was going to be his. So predestination isn't God says, okay, I'm going to make you do this, make you do this. Predestination is not causative. It's more reactive. God lives outside of time and space. He knows the end from the beginning. And so uh, anonymous, he knows everybody who's going to say yes. And he sets his love upon those people and chooses them. And then we get an opportunity to choose him back in time and space. When Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you, we need to remember that always. I have people, anonymous, that will come up all the time and say, well, I found Jesus, and I see he wasn't lost. He found you. And I do that not to be a jerk. I do that because I want him to have a, a clearer picture of Jesus always chasing us. So that's what predestination is. God doesn't cause the choice that we make. He knows the choice that we're going to make and then responds to that. And if you are chosen by God, and everybody can find out in an instant if they're chosen by God simply by choosing him back. And, and uh, you know, chosen. My pastor used to say, Pastor Chuck is with the Lord now. He used to say, you know, my view of predestination is uh, I'm, I'm approaching the, the, the pearly gates and I see a sign that says enter of your own free will. And then when I enter in thinking that I did something by making the right choice, an angel taps me on the shoulder and points the other direction. I look back and on the other side of that gate is chosen by God. So God sovereignly chooses us. Remember, he doesn't cause the decision we make, nor does he force the decision that we make. But he knows the decision that we make and responds accordingly. So that's predestination in a nutshell. God choosing those uh, that he knows they're going to choose him back. That's a great question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five on this Friday program. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, uh, you can call toll free at eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. Jordan says, "I'm afraid the government is going to mandate more vaccinations and booster shots. Is it okay not to comply?" Absolutely, Jordan. It is okay not to comply. We don't, we're not asked to, to put things in our body that are untested and unproven. Um, vaccinations that have clearly, 
caused so many health problems for so many people. Now, obviously, with any vaccination, the large number of adults or or people, actually, who've been vaccinated are not going to have side effects. But there is an increasing, an alarmingly increasing rate of people healthy before the vaccinations who are no longer healthy. There's all kinds of other issues. I'm not going to take the time to talk about them here. You can study on your own. But um, this is not something the government has control. Our body is not our own. It belongs to the Lord. And we don't have to take the boosters or the vaccines simply because the government mandates it. We serve a higher authority. And this is why the decision needs to be made in the councils of prayer. Lord, what do you want me to do? Uh, I have a dear friend who uh, is a missionary and travels all over the world sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, the Lord had him be vaccinated. Well, he had to do that in order to go into these countries, to be able to fly, to be able to get injury. And um, that was just a risk, a sacrifice that he was willing to make in order to further his calling. But Jordan, for people who are sticking around, Um, we're not required to do this. Our body belongs to the Lord. Lord, what about me? And what about today? So that's always the approach. Now, Jordan, I'm going to warn you about something. One of the things that we don't want to do, and this is really difficult because our flesh wants to do this. I think the enemy wants to get us bound in this. We're not in this world to take sides or make arguments. We're not in this world to go on social media and find out what the people are saying or what the people think about it and and be persuaded by public opinion. What we're to do is to say, Jesus, I'm your servant. What do you want me to do? And then do that. And if we do that, Jordan, then uh, we're on really solid ground. Um, Personally, I'm, I'm convinced that... Uh, the government uh, is not going to do mandates. I think they're going to promote vaccinations and boosters. I think, uh, especially that we're in an election cycle now, as we get closer, I think they have motivation to um, maybe have more ballots by mail. Uh, again, like in the nineteen or the twenty twenty election, um, and so so I, th- I think they'll really be pushing it hard. But I don't think there'll be mandates. I think the government is smart enough to know that the people simply aren't going to comply. I also think, and this is, again, just my opinion. You can just throw it away if it doesn't fit you. But but I think that um, the idea of shutting things down, uh, wearing masks, um, isolating ourselves again, uh, because of a potential COVID outbreak, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure to do that. Uh, and I just don't think the public is ever going to do that again. I don't think schools are going to close. I don't think that that uh, churches are going to be asked to close and public gatherings. I just think that we learned our lesson from that first debacle. Uh, I think we're smarter. I think we're um, more cynical. Uh, distrusting is probably a better word. Distrusting of the government and the information that they're giving. So, Jordan, um, it is okay not to comply when it comes to the vaccines and the booster shots. Talk to your doctor. You know, that's what I do. I talk to my doctor. I got a doctor who loves Jesus, Dr. Peter at Malta Medical. Uh, and I talk to him, what do you think? And, 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 you know, we can talk about it. And and we can take medical advice from people that are qualified to make the advice. I want to say one final time, and then I'll move on to something else. Uh, the people on social media, the people that are arguing about their different positions and, and um, um, trying to convince everybody else, um, they are not experts. Don't waste your time. Protect yourselves, Christians, from social media. Christopher says, what is the new perspective on Paul and is it legitimate? Um, uh, The new perspective, uh, people like N.T. Wright, who, by the way, is very eloquent. Um, um, He's an Episcopal priest. 
um, which disqualifies him from having any validity simply because the Episcopal Church is is um, uh, apostate. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a way we say, well, Paul didn't mean this, but he meant that. And, and he can soften uh, Paul's words. Um, the new perspective is, uh, is not legitimate. Uh, Paul hasn't changed in 2,000 years. And, and looking for a new perspective is just another way of trying to figure out a way to do what we want and convince ourselves that it's okay with God. So the this new perspective on Paul, and again, I think N.T. Wright is at the vanguard of this new perspective, but there are others who simply don't like what the Apostle Paul says, that he's black and white, he inhibits their their ability to sin with impunity. And I think, um, Christopher, what uh, they're really trying to do is so foreign to what the Word says that uh, I think it's something that we can just completely throw away. Remember what I always say, Christopher, and this is for everybody in the audience, if it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. Turn those around, and that's the perspective that we get. There's nothing new under the sun. The word is the word. What was true 2,000 years ago is true now. Well, we're at the end of the first half hour of our last show of the week, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is The Word to Stand Up for Life. We love your phone calls. I'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half our final 30 minutes of the week 340-9585 for your live calls and questions here's a question from mallory mallory says is birth control okay for christians who are married um, sure, Mallory, that's a matter of conscience. Romans fourteen twenty three. Anything not of faith is sin. If um, uh, you and your husband approach the Lord and you don't believe you're ready for kids yet and the Lord doesn't throw up a roadblock, um, then certainly birth control is okay. Um, the Bible doesn't talk about it. Um, so it's, it's, it's an individual choice. Uh, don't let anybody judge you for your choice. Uh, having said that, let me say one thing. And and I do a lot of pre-marriage counseling here, Mallory. Um, whether or not to have children is always something I think that we ought to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In other words, we should ask Him. Instead of making plans, we who are believers ought to ask Him Husbands and wives, or, or, or in my case, in pre-marriage counseling, when I say, well, are you planning on having kids? Well, we want kids, but maybe not for five years or so. And I'll, I'll just, and all I'm doing is planting a seed. I'll just say, have you asked the Lord about that? Have you asked the Lord about that? I've had so many people who waited for kids and then couldn't have them. And I just think, as believers... We ought to be able to say, Lord, thy will, not my will be done. It's okay to have preferences. Lord, I, I, I want to have some time. I want to finish school, whatever it is. But Jesus, what do you want? I think most of the time the Lord maybe has planted those thoughts, those plans in your heart. But but there are times when you can say, now is the time. And we don't want to miss out on anything, Mallory, that God wants for us. So, these are decisions that ought to be taken into the counsels of God in prayer. With you and your husband in agreement, Amos 3.3 3 says, How can two walk together unless they agree to do so? And you and your husband may both want to hold off for some time, but both of you as believers really need to say, Lord, what do you want? And then agreeing to do what he wants is always the place of freedom. It's always the place 
of the fullness of joy. So I hope that's clear, Mallory. Thank you for asking the question. Jack says, Pastor Ron, what will happen to the people left behind after the rapture? Well, Jack, it'll be the worst time in the history of the world by far. Um, The Bible says there was never a time like it before, nor will there ever be a time again like it. It will be a time when God's judgment is poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. That's why we Christians will be taken away in the rapture of the church. We'll meet Jesus in the air. And we'll be taken for seven years as earth measures time. And we'll be at the wedding banquet of the of the Lord, the wedding supper of the Lord. Um, but on earth, literally all hell is breaking loose. The Antichrist is going to be revealed, um, the, 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 combined with the judgments from God uh, and the... the the, the evil, the complete and utter darkness and wickedness that's going to be going on in the world. It's just going to be a time that is so bad we can't even describe it adequately. And they're just going to have to go through it. Now, the good news, Jack, is that there's going to be the the greatest, by far, the greatest revival the world has ever seen. Millions upon millions upon millions of people are going to be getting saved during that time. Now, the bad news is that they will still endure this terrible punishment, the judgment that's coming on the earth. And most of the Christians, most of those who make, who come to faith during the Great Tribulation, most of them will be martyred for their faith. They will have their heads cut off. Um, they, they simply won't be able to stand against the Antichrist and his forces. And they're going to be persecuted like never before. They will be the martyrs. We can see them. Uh, under the altar in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, uh, we can see them under the altar crying out, How long, O God, till you avenge our blood, avenge our death? And, and, and the Lord says, Just a little while longer. And, and we know that happens in Revelation chapter 19. So they will be plunged into a time that is the worst ever, so bad that we can't even begin to imagine it. One other comment, Jack. You know, I have people that will sometimes say, well, I'll know if the church gets raptured. I'll know that, that Jesus is true and all what you guys said is true. And so I'll give my life to Jesus Christ during the Great Tribulation. And they do that so that they can live their life any way they want to here. And I always counter with this. If you don't give your life to Jesus now, while well, it costs you nothing. Well, it's the easiest to do it it will ever be. What makes you think that you're going to have the courage and the faith to do it when it'll cost you everything, when it'll cost you your life. I mean, it's going to be such a hopeless circumstance. Death, destruction, judgment after judgment after judgment. Believe me, somebody who won't give their life to Jesus now, while it's easy, isn't going to take that step there. People won't be able to buy and sell, um, providing for their families, even having food to eat will be impossible during the Great Tribulation unless they take the mark of the beast, which is a commitment that they will make knowingly to serve the enemy, the devil. So, Jack, that's what's going to happen to them, and it's going to be horrible. That's why we need to be telling people about Jesus Christ. You know, tonight I'm going to be teaching Philemon. Um, uh, We're just going to take a one-week break. Next uh, week, our, our programs will be from... Uh, the um, um, men's retreat. Uh, and we won't have a Friday night Bible study, so uh, this week uh, we're just I'm just going to do a one chapter book. And Philemon is such a great, great book to study. And unfortunately, most Christians just don't really open the book and give it the the the, the seriousness that it deserves. Here's a question from Derek. Why did Job's wife tell him to curse God and die? Uh, Derek, we need to give Job's wife a whole bunch of grace. I mean, she she lost her children. She lost, along with Job, everything that they had. She's watching her husband go through these horrible, horrible boils and pains, and, and then she's she's a stand a stand by her when um, Joe Job's friends come and stop being friends after the first week. 
And, and she's just seeing nothing but misery and pain. And she herself is grieving the loss of her children, the loss of their security. And, you know, she's wrong. Doctrinally, she's certainly wrong. But but I think in a time like this, we've got to understand that people say things. God's big enough to take it. Um, she may have meant it when she said it, but believe me, she wasn't thinking uh, rightly at the time. Uh, she was speaking through the lens of grief. And as I said, God is always willing to overlook those things. So God's not angry with her. Um, he's not going to have a temper tantrum and and destroy her. Um, she's going to be in heaven. And um, we all say things when we're grieving that we wish we hadn't said later on the other end of it. So uh, I think that's why she told him. I, it, it doesn't indicate at all that she's not what we would call a believer. I just think the pain, and we can understand that, the pain was so intense that she really couldn't deal with it at all. Derek, thank you very, very much for the question. Isaac asked the question that's the most important question anybody will ever deal with. Isaac says, how does someone get born again? I'm really trying to understand. Isaac, the Holy Spirit seems clearly to be working in your life. His job, according to Jesus, is to convict the world. Let me, I'm going to personalize this. To convict Isaac of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And that's what he's doing. He's knocking on the door of your heart, Isaac. He's trying to convince you of what should be obvious. You're a sinner. You know, you keep making bad choices. Your life is, is a mess. There's an emptiness in your heart like the rich young ruler. What must I do to obtain eternal life? In other words, he knew he didn't have it in the same way. You know you don't have it, Isaac. The Holy Spirit is asking you to respond. So what do you respond to? The gospel of grace. Jesus Christ came. He lived a perfect sinless life. He died. He was actually murdered. We know that on the third day he rose from the dead. Those are historical facts. These are not story stories that we make up to make us feel better about dying. These are facts, historical facts. The evidence is overwhelming. That means Jesus is who he said he was. He said he was God incarnate. So what do we do? We say, Jesus, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I believe that you are the Son of God and God the Son. In other words, Jesus claimed to be God repeatedly. And you say, now I believe you. And then you ask him to forgive you. And there's one final step. Jesus, you have to be in charge now. I've been living my life for you. I mean, I've been living my life for me. And look what it's gotten me. From this point forward, Lord, come into my heart. And I give you control of my life. That's what it means to be born again. You just have to disown you. Die to you. Die to your desires. Die to your plans. Now, in your mind, Isaac, that won't all happen at once. But this is where faith comes in. Because we believe the evidence. Because Jesus proved who he was. Because he proved that he loves you. Our next step is simply to say, Lord... I trust you. Your plans are better than my plans. And you may not have any understanding at all how that's going to work. But it's simply submitting to the one that you now know is God in human flesh. You just let him make the choices for you. Isaac, I don't know how long you've been listening to this program, but you hear me say all the time that as Christians, it's as simple as just being with Jesus. And your life can begin now just being with Jesus and he will give you a life that you never imagined it's completely different probably than anything you ever hoped but it will be better, richer Jesus refers to it as the abundant life and it will change everything about you being born again isn't a new improved version of the old you Isaac you know, the man or the woman who says, well, I'm going to try to be better. That's not what being born again is. Being born again is realizing, I can't be better, Lord. 
So I'm going to let you do the better work in me and through me. And that's what it means to be born again. You're just committing your life to him. So Isaac, my hope and my prayer is that that's as clear and understandable as it can possibly be that you're ready to say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I believe and I will follow you. You know, Isaac, it's interesting. Uh, We had a pastor's discipleship class uh, not this past Saturday but, but two Saturdays before that and we talked about this very issue and uh, Jesus never called anybody to do anything other than follow him when Jesus called his original disciples he said follow me, stop what you're doing and follow me and that's all he's asking you to do Isaac is to follow him Reality, logic says that when you've been following you, the desires of your heart, things haven't gone so great. And I know that because that was the story of my life. I never dreamed I'd be doing what I'm doing, Isaac. I was never raised in church. I didn't, I'd never opened a Bible. And here I am, a pastor, and God's given me the opportunity to do this radio program every day during the week for the last 10, almost 11 years. All we have to do now is look back and say, Lord, you've done pretty well. And that's what your future holds, Isaac. So it's what we're hoping and praying for, that you will say yes to the Lord, the work the Holy Spirit's doing. Thank you for the question, Isaac. Phyllis says, How can I reconcile God's sovereignty and people having to choose whether or not to believe. Um, Phyllis, there's no difficulty in reconciling God's sovereignty. I think I think sometimes our perception of God's sovereignty is flawed, and by that I mean it's, it appears as though you think God being sovereign means God saying, you do this and you do that and you do that. That's not what God's sovereignty is. God's sovereignty is accomplishing his will regardless of the choice we make. You know, it's clear, you look around the world and people defy the will of God all the time and yet God's plan continues to grow. And so God doesn't just say, okay, Ron, you have no choice. You're going to serve me, you're going to be a pastor. He, he lets me make those choices. And you know, the, the, the frightening thing to me, Phyllis, is if I would have said no to God's calling as a pastor, God simply would have chosen somebody else who probably would have done a much better job than I do. That's... Sovereignty on display. God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. That's sovereign power. He accomplishes his will. His plan is never thwarted in spite of the choices that we make to defy him. So free will is a biblical principle. We have to make a choice, um, but that doesn't negate God's sovereignty at all. So instead of reconciling them, they are companions, and we need to look at them a different way. Remember, God doesn't cause these things to happen. God knows they are going to happen, and he's sovereign over the circumstances of those things. I think maybe we have time for a phone call or two still. It's 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Xavier says, do you really think that the Holy Spirit is restraining evil now? Yeah, Xavier, it doesn't look like it. I mean, from our perspective, it doesn't look like it. We see evil running rampant. But but I know it's true because the Bible says it's true. Um, the Holy Spirit working in the lives of believers uh, is actually in the process of restraining evil. We can only imagine how bad it's going to be when we are no longer restraining, when the church is raptured. And the work of the Holy Spirit then will turn to those who are left behind in judgment. And as I said to an earlier question, that revival will begin. Um, But yes, he is restraining evil now. And as dark as things are getting, again, how how much darker things would be if we weren't here. Uh, Jesus said the church is salt and light. Uh, salt is a preservative in the ancient world, and we're sort of preserving the modicum of holiness that's in this world right now. But we're also light in the middle of darkness. 
Jesus said in his best judge voice, this is the verdict, light has come into the world, but men hated the light because their deeds were evil. And so we're not going to vanquish evil, but we are restraining it. We're holding it back. And now, um, um, you know, we look around at our world, we see those who are elected officials, we see things getting further and further out of balance and just darker and darker and darker. I, I think, Xavier, we're, we're in that process like Israel was where we're getting the kings. And I mean that metaphorically. We don't have kings, but we have a president and senators and congressmen. Uh, we're getting the, the, the leadership that we deserve. And I think the leadership that we have in place in this country right now is judgment from God on the United States of America. I can't look at it in any other way. I think a lying spirit has been permitted. Uh, we believe things now that are impossible to believe, and um, we, we, we can't criticize anybody for, for, for believing it's so dark, it's never going to get better. That's what Paul says in Second Timothy chapter 3. Mark this, Timothy, in the last days, meaning the very last days, not all of the last days. There will be terrible times. The King James uses the word perilous times. And then he describes pretty much the kind of world that we're living in right now. So, Xavier, that's where we are. Mitch asks this question, I believe in Jesus but cannot believe he was resurrected. Is that something I have to believe to be saved? Yeah, Mitch, you've got to believe it because if Jesus isn't resurrected from the dead, Paul says that we're to be pitied more than all people. It's really that simple. We have no hope apart from resurrected Christ. If he's not alive, we will not live forever. So the truth is, Mitch, you do not believe in Jesus because Jesus is alive. He's seated at the right hand of God. And his resurrection is proven by overwhelming evidence it is a historical fact and you need to spend some time really checking it out for yourself thank you mitch let's go to greg on the line for us greg we got about four minutes thanks for calling oh good deal hey well this i just love hearing your uh your wisdom as you even just go through the emails uh question is kind of help me wipe my brain around this since the holy spirit is who's in contact with us at this point on this planet. You know, God the Father is in on the throne. Jesus is at his right hand. Should we be praying just directly to the Holy Spirit and, and call his name? Or does it matter? Do we say in Jesus' name or Holy Spirit name? Just kind of help me uh, get my brain wrapped around that. Okay. Thank you, Greg. Good to hear from you, my friend. Uh, a couple of things. I, I personally, I, I talk to Jesus. Jesus is the one who revealed the Father. Um, Jesus is the one who sent the Holy Spirit. So, so I talk to Jesus. Jesus personalizes the Father for me. There's no way that we can apprehend the Father in, in, in his eternal state um, apart from Jesus Christ. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father, Jesus said. And, and I think that simplifies that. Having said that, it makes no difference. There, there's no competition. There's no um, jealousy or envy among the, the members of the Godhead. Um, Father, Son, and Spirit are one God. And when we're praying uh, to Jesus or talking to Jesus, uh, we're also talking, of course, with the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. So so what we do is we, we pray to Jesus. Now, I think one of the problems is Jesus saying, up to now you've asked me for nothing, but in the future you will ask me, you'll ask the Father in my name. And we sort of look at that, Greg, as a as like a lucky rabbit's foot. You know, we'll pray anything in Jesus' name. Um, but but understand the Jewish culture, to, to, to pray in somebody's name or to, 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 to give somebody a name that had meaning, describe their character and who they are. So when we pray in Jesus' name, and we don't have to say those words, but when we pray in Jesus' name, what we're really praying is, nevertheless, thy will, not my will be done. We're praying from a place of surrender and submission. And when we pray from that position, then prayers are going to get answered. They're not always going to get answered in our preferred way, but they're always going to be answered. Yes, no, wait, not now, 
later, but but at some point they're going to be answered. And so praying to the Father in the name of Jesus, Jesus was simply communicating to his disciples that now because of him they have access to a Father that they couldn't approach before. And Jews and Jesus' disciples were all Jews. They would have understood that only the high priest and only once a year could enter into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God. And he had to make sacrifice first for his sins and then for the sins of the people. And so the idea of instant access to the Father is something that no Jew could ever possibly understand. And that's why Jews even today will try to approach him through a series of good works or things that they do. And what we need to understand is that Jesus has allowed the the simple, the foolish, the weak, the shamed, the, the despised things, even the things that are not, into his presence. That's why we need to be grateful. Thank you, Greg. Good to hear from you. Hey, have a great long holiday, long weekend. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, uh, we'll be back live on Tuesday. We'll have a rebroadcast on Monday, live on Tuesday on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.